So you notice that this is a fishing pole. I think that's pretty self-evident. And if you were to guess, if I were to use this fishing pole in some water that had fish, and I were to cast the line in, how many fish am I likely to catch on this line? Ponder it and you think, well, if you're doing this, probably none. (laughs) But the typical expectation and the likely result is that one fish will uh, be caught on this line. Uh, We would use something of uh, lures or worms or some other item to try to gain a fish's attention. And the unsuspecting fish, thinking it's having something to eat, would snap its mouth down and lo and behold, it's caught on a line. That's one way of trying to catch fish. We also have nets. Uh, if you were to use a net, perhaps you could catch one or two fish if you are in the right spot at the right time. You see there's the possibility of more than one fish when you uh, dunk a, a, a net in there. Um, now as you come to like the professional fishing equipment, the professional tra- trawling boats or trolling boats, where they have these large fishing nets and they, they, they let it down and, and eventually they can uh, harvest this giant catch of fish. Uh, we have you know, the, the one fish wonder, the two fish possibility, and then the, the multiple fish catch, different methodologies to doing this. Now, perhaps fishing isn't the most fitting illustration uh, for what we're about to talk about, because when we catch fish, they potentially are doomed if we're going to eat it, or you know, if some of you like to put it on the wall, or whatever you do with those things. It's not my, it's not my, uh, my category. Um, But the concept that we're discussing and seeing from Romans chapter 9 is that God is rescuing people. We're talking about the rescue that God provides. And God has a way of dealing with the world that He has created so as to bring about the grandest of rescues. God has a way of dealing with the world that He has created as to bring the grandest of rescues. I feel so privileged to preach through this passage this morning. Now, we've had to wrestle through some tough passages of Scripture over these last uh, weeks. As we come to this section, there's such a privilege in seeing the working of God that uh, I I think we, we will leave this morning both challenged, encouraged, and, uh, and seeking. Seeking to be an instrument in the hands of our great God. And that is our goal this morning, to, to worship God better and to be more rightly and properly used by Him. The last time that we were together studying this passage, we recognized that God was demonstrating His character He was demonstrating his character through the process of offering the gospel to the world. Now we noticed that God demonstrated his patience, his power, and his wrath as he endures people's rejection of his offer through Jesus Christ to save them. So here's God providing the potential for rescue. And people rejecting Him and rejecting His offer of salvation. And in this process, God demonstrates His patience with them and ultimately His power and His wrath toward them and their sin. 
Uh, this both encourages us as we learn about the Lord, and it, and it really shocks us in our understanding of people's, the grave situation that people are in. Now, on the other side, through God's intervention in preparing vessels of mercy, God is working to demonstrate His mercy, His love, and His grace. God, in providing the riches of His glory for undeserving people like me, and undeserving people like you, God demonstrates who He is in His loving kindness, His mercy, and His grace. And we learn that as we read God's Word. We see God's kindness on display again and again. Now, toward the beginning of the chapter, uh, Romans 9, Paul was describing a narrowing down, a narrowing down of God's line of blessing and the line of promise. So we saw clearly that it was Isaac and not Ishmael that would be blessed. Isaac, not Ishmael that was in the line of promise. And then further than that, narrowing it down even more, we have Jacob and not Esau that was in the line of blessing, the line of promise. And from that, we kind of see a little broadening out from that narrowing. And we see uh, the people of Moses and the children of Israel are in the line of blessing, whereas Pharaoh and the people of Egypt are on the outside of that line of blessing and that line of promise. You see the narrowing, but maybe slightly broadening there. We see a, a, a narrowing in the beginning of the text, but as we come to verse 24 and following, what we will notice, I think properly, is the scope of God's intervention, the scope of God's redemption. It's not narrowing, but broadening. The scope widens in this section. Let's take a look, please, at the text. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. God's mercy has widening, a widening scope. We see it in verse 24 as he comes to the conclusion of the last section and introduces the new section. God's mercy is a widening out and incorporating more than the, the Isaac and the Jacob and the Moses and the people of Israel. It's widening out further than that and it's a beautiful thing that we see in verse 24. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Who has God prepared for glory? That's how the last section ends. God is preparing these vessels of mercy for glory. Who is God preparing for glory? It is both Jews 
and Gentiles. It's not Jews only, it's Jews and Gentiles. And Paul includes himself and us, his readers, in verse 24. Even us, whom God has called. And so he includes us in this widening scope that God has included people like us that were born outside of the promises of God. Uh, Ephesians 2 does a wonderful job discussing that beginning in verse 11, going right to the end of the chapter. We'll uh, reference that later on this morning. Now to prove his point, God through Paul combines some statements from the book of Hosea. But while he's doing this, he lets us know in verses 25 and 26 that it's God speaking. Listen to what he says in, in verse 25. He says, As indeed he says in Hosea. So who's the he? It's God. So God is speaking here. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and those who were not beloved I will call beloved. And at the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So he proves his point by pointing to Hosea. So let's take a look there. Head back to Hosea, part of the minor prophets. They're only called the minor prophets because they are smaller in their content, the number of verses in each book. The messages are profound and major. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the major prophets, then Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc. The minor prophets. Hosea was writing at a time of great economic, social, and political prosperity. Things had had gone as well for Israel economically, socially, and politically at that point in their history as they had since Solomon. Now, under Solomon, the spread of their kingdom was as wide as it it ever was. And then they shrunk, right? Because they had the splitting of the kingdoms and there was all kinds of opposition. But under that new setup, this was where they saw their greatest prosperity. The prosperity produced within the people joy, rejoicing, and thanksgiving. Oh, unless you actually read what the text says, because that's not what it says. Instead of joy, rejoicing, and thanksgiving, what that prosperity did for the people was cause them to be idolatrous and immoral. They rejected God in the midst of God's great kindness and blessing. It's a very sad circumstance, not unlike many circumstances that we see every day. God called Hosea to endure a marriage of unfaithfulness from his wife Gomer. And that unfaithfulness was an illustration for the people of Israel of their unfaithfulness toward God. Now, like we've read Hosea, right? You've read Hosea, maybe you've even studied Hosea. And if you're not careful, it just becomes another story that you've read. But we're actually talking about actual people in actual history. Hosea was actually a man who actually lived, who actually endured these difficulties with his wife, endured the the challenge emotionally and physically that this would create in a marriage and in a person. He endured this for the sake of illustrating for the people of Israel and every generation since then what unfaithfulness to God looks like. 
And so we have this accounting of Hosea and Gomer. Take a look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So the context here is the forsaking of the Lord. They are unfaithful to God. And God says, you be an illustration of this. His life goes on. He marries Gomer. She conceives and bears him. This is the only time it says he bears, she bore him a son. Later on it says, and she bore and she bore. In other words, she has two more children after this. Whether they're Hosea's children or someone else's children, we don't know. But this is the only time that God tells us this child is Hosea and Gomer's child. Verse 4, And the, the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. The word Jezreel, the name, this is Hosea's son. The word Jezreel means scattered. Scattered, or it can mean planted. And interestingly, God chooses to use both of these expressions of how that word Jezreel can be used in the same chapter. They're scattered at first and then they're planted later. But that's, that's another story for a little later. We've got Hosea marrying Gomer. They have a child. His name is Jezreel. It means he's scattered. And then verse 6, we see another conception she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. In the Hebrew, it's Lo Ruhama. Lo Ruhama. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. In what way, God, will you not have mercy any longer on the house of Israel? Well, he doesn't leave us wondering. He says, To forgive them. What are those last two words? At all. At all. That's, pretty, that's a pretty strong statement. God says, I want you to name this one Loruhama, and her birth, her name, will remind the people of Israel that they are outside of my mercy. My mercy for them is no longer. Lo means no in Hebrew. Ruhama means mercy, no mercy any longer. Now, verse, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. The Hebrew is lo ami. Lo, not. Ami, my people. For you are not my people. And I am not your God. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God and your perspective of God, but if I heard from God a proclamation that I no longer had mercy and I was no longer His, per His, His people, no longer His person, and He was no longer my God, that would absolutely crush me because that's everything that I live for is to receive the mercy of God and to be one of His people. There's nothing else in this life that gives us hope and satisfaction and joy, like knowing that I have the mercy of the Lord upon me and knowing that I am God's child. Amen. 
And God just took all of that away in this proclamation from Hosea to the nation of Israel. This is a devastating scene. I know you know Paul Harvey. And I know you know that there's the rest of the story that is involved here because it doesn't end here. And Paul is quoting back, he's citing back to this passage, letting us know that there's some relationship between what's happening in Hosea and this application that he's making in the book of Romans chapter 9. And so we want to try to uncover that. We want to try to, un- uh, to, to see that. Look at verses 10 and 11. These verses picture the restoration of God's promises to the people of Israel. Look at verse 10. Yet, in the face of all this, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God! And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In other words, the day of planting. First it's the scattering and then it's the planting. God is envisioning for the people that this this condemnation that they're receiving because of their rebelliousness, because of their forsaking God. God wasn't going to leave them there. He was going to bring them back. He was going to restore them. He was going to plant them. He was going to bring about His promises. So, let's think about this a little bit because we want to really try to gather this text so that we can properly understand Romans chapter 9. That is our goal. Well, the reason we're in Hosea chapters 1 and 2 is because we're trying to understand Romans 9 as best we can. What types of actions were the people of Israel involved in that caused God to say, scattered, no mercy, not my people? What were the actions? Well, let's take a look. Chapter 2, look at verse 5. We're just going to get a little glimpse. We're not going to get the full version. Verse 5, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In other words, Gomer was picturing the fact that the people of Israel thought my satisfaction will come from this place and this place and that place, when in reality, the only place that they were ever given any real satisfaction came from the Lord. They were forsaking the Lord. Look at verse 8 now. Verse 8, chapter 2. It says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. In other words, they were worshiping other gods with the blessings that God poured out on them. Verse 13, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, forgot me, forgot me, forsook me, remembered me no more, says the Lord. This is the problem. This is, this is how they got to the place of scattered, no mercy, not my people. And they said, you don't give me what I need. I get what I really need out there. 
So that's how we got here. That's how they got there. So let's, let's come to this very important question. How do the circumstances change? How do the circumstances change? Did Israel see all of this and say, Oh, I see the error of my ways. I have turned tail and have redirected my course. That's not what God tells us. Take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, behold... What's the next word? We're going to do that one again, okay? Verse 14. Therefore, behold... I. I. Who's the I? God. Oh, okay. God's going to do something. Don't you love it? When God does something? Because when He does it, it's done correctly. It's done well. It's done perfectly. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and I will chastise her. That's how we would read it. (laughs) That's not what the text says. He says, I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now the valley of Achor comes back to the days of Joshua and Achan when he stole from the people, when God told them that all of the booty, all of the the spoils were to go into my coffers, my, my treasury, and Achan saw coveted, took, and hid the Babylonian garment, the wedges of silver and gold, hid them under the tent. Remember all that? There is the Valley of Achor where God judged them for this. And God says, the Valley of Achor, that place of judgment, will be made a door of hope. I am going to turn this thing upside down. Where your sin abounds and your rebellion increases, and you turn away from me, and you seek everything else, I will come, and I will change the circumstances. I will allure you. I will speak words of tenderness to you. And I will make that place of judgment a place where you have eternal, glorious hope. Because this is who God is. This is His character. It's constantly demonstrated again and again throughout Scripture. We see it from the Garden of Eden all the way through Revelation chapter 22. God mercifully, graciously, saving horrific, rebellious sinners like me, making me His child when I did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. And that's the picture that God is pointing. Because the people of Israel with all the blessings that God was pouring upon them day in and day out, said, I get my satisfaction over here. It's this God that does it for me. I will sacrifice the gifts you've given to me to someone else because that's where I find my pleasure. And God says, no. Nope, scattered. No mercy. Not my people. But I have a plan. And I will fulfill my good purposes. And so he allures them and speaks mercy and kindness and turns judgment into hope. In the middle of verse 15, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me 
my husband, and no longer will you call me my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me. What is that next word? Forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. I will sow, I will plant for I will plant her, sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. These people in this context were born into the line of blessing and into the line of of promise. They experienced the blessing of God and yet they lived in opposition to the God that blessed them. Though they were in the line of the promises, listen carefully to this, though they were in the line of the promises, they needed the mercy of God and the grace of God to redeem them. Friends, whether you're an adult or a young person. We are not saved by being born into a Christian home. Or even by our heavy involvement in a local gospel preaching church. That does not save us. We each need to see ourselves as sinners. To understand that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that in that sin, we deserve, we deserve the righteous judgment of God. And though we deserve that judgment, God sends to us grace upon grace in the person of Jesus Christ. It's like an unending waves, the unending waves of the ocean lapping up upon the Seashore, time and again, the waves of grace that come through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has offered us grace, but we need to turn from our sin. We need to turn to Jesus Christ to save us. And God can take this man who was spiritually dead and make me spiritually alive. He can do that for me. He can do that for you. He can do that for your neighbor. This is God's work. He takes those that are dead and blind, makes them alive and seeing. This is what He does. This is what we're in Hosea for. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, again, go back to the last chapter, Hosea 1, 10. 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, You are the children of the living God. So God, in accordance with this prophetic writing, will make unbelieving descendants of Abraham into God's spiritual children. Everyone agree that that's what that text says? God will take unbelieving descendants of Abraham and make them believing spiritual children of Abraham. That's what that text is letting us know. God is doing this. Head back to the book of Romans, please. Romans chapter 9. Now we know how people of all the nations can also become the children of God. God is taking these uh, children of of Abraham who are unbelieving and he's making them the children of God. We also know how those that are from the other nations can be made into the children of God, don't we? John chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege to become children of God. It's to all those who believe in his name. We're in Romans. Take a look at Romans chapter 8 this time. As we get a little closer to our context, trying to figure out how the, the connection is between Paul's use of Hosea and what he's trying to say in Romans chapter 9, he's already told us in Romans chapter 8 that God has taken Gentiles, those that, that were outside of the people of Israel, and he's made us, believers, children of God. Look at verse, verse 14 of Romans chapter 8. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. Well, that's what we're talking about those that were on the outside, right? Those were not children being made children. Those that were not His people being made His people. Those who did not have a right to say, you're my God, saying, you are my God. Well, in Romans chapter 8, he's told us how that takes place. Now, he's been leading up to that point from the beginning. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we recognize that we have forgiveness of sins in, in and through Christ. He is our mercy seat when we trust Christ as our Savior. And he also grants us eternal righteousness and he places his spirit within us. And that spirit, God's spirit, the third person of the triune God, cries out from us. And what does He call God? Abba. Father. Whose Father is He? He's the Father of everyone that trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is what the Spirit does. He makes us sons of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And just like the rebellious, lost Jews of Hosea's day, God is able to make Gentiles who are outside of Christ into his own spiritual children. And this is how Peter uses a reference to Hosea. This is how how he brings it about. Look at uh, on the screens, 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in the flow of Romans chapter 9, just to kind of get our minds back there, we've gone from narrowing down the Jews who are in the line of promise to broadening out 
into all nations. Now God widens the scope to explain how the Gentiles can be included in the promised blessing. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end because this whole passage is leading us to understand the glorious end. There's more. There's more. And we're not just talking about in 2021. There's more in 2021, isn't there? Do you have breath in your lungs? You still have the gospel before you? God is going to save more people in 2021. But that's not it. It's not, that's not the end of the story. There's something far more glorious to come when all these billions of people from all the ages that God has saved out of His own mercy and grace will be gathered together to worship God. And I just stole all of my thunder. We're back in Romans chapter 9. Look at verses 27 and following as we transition. We transition from the widening scope to a Another concept. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out descendants upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now we transition to a a bit of a humbling section here. And here's how we'll try to capture it. God's merciful redemption of a Jewish remnant prevents catastrophic judgment. God's merciful redemption of a Jewish remnant prevents catastrophic judgment. He cites Isaiah 10 to continue his argument. He's already talked about how God included the Gentiles and the Jews that we've been called we've been vessels of mercy that God is preparing for the riches of His glory. This is, this is wonderful. And he says it includes Jews and Gentiles. And before he wraps up the conversation, he says, but he doesn't include every Jew in this discussion. There's a, there's a portion of these Jews that he is saving. And so he cites Isaiah 10, and I encourage you to turn to Isaiah 10 with me. Isaiah chapter 10. In this chapter, God communicates about how He used Assyria, a a rebellious, terrible group of people. God used Assyria to accomplish His will. He also lets us know that He was going to judge the Assyrians and deliver His people Israel. That's the good news. But the deliverance would be a remnant. Now, the word remnant is from a Hebrew word that means residue. You know what residue is? Like, you try to get rid of it. You've got something on, on your mirror, right? It's on there, and you're like, oh, I don't like the look of that. So you take out your Windex if you buy the high test, spray it down. Or if you're really, really high class, you get the Norwex cloth. Whatever. You wipe it down. Sorry, that was just a commercial. You wipe it down. Sometimes there's a little bit left. It's a residue. All right, so I'm, I'm going to clean it again. Maybe I had something on my rag. So I get out another one and I clean it up and okay, now it's, now it's finally clear and I can see myself again. Probably should have left the residue on there. Uh, small amount is the idea. That's the concept. So God tells us He's going to save His people, but He's only going to save a a remnant. Take a look now at verses 20 through 23 of Isaiah. In that day, the remnant of 
Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, speaking of the Assyrians, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And how will they lean on him? They'll lean on him truly, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. In other words, God will judge sin. But even in the midst of judging sin, He's going to be saving people. He's going to be saving people. And in the case of the Jewish people, He's going to save a remnant of them, a small portion for His glory. Take a look at chapter 1 now of Isaiah. Because now Paul follows the thought a little bit further. Because you might say, why only a small portion? Why not everybody? And the way that God answers that question through Paul via Isaiah through His Spirit, is that if I left you to your own resources, there's not one of us on all the earth that would ever have made the cut. One man lived perfectly. He happened to be the God-man. The incarnate Son of God. Only one who lived perfectly. The only one who demonstrated that this Man, Christ Jesus, this man, deserved eternal salvation. Because not only did he not sin, he did all, always and only righteousness. So if God left us to our own resources, how many of us would have been saved? That'd be zero. So the remnant is God, in spite of the fact that of your own resources you would have obtained only judgment... I am going to save some of you. That's the concept. So, Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children that I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but, the, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have utterly, they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole, the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Look down at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had left us, a few survivors had not, excuse me, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. Now it's interesting that he uses Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies It's another expression that demonstrates the almighty power of God. 
this powerful God saved people who were completely undeserving. Left to themselves, Israel would sin, fail, corrupt themselves, and be destroyed. And those glorious, immortal words of Ephesians 2 ring in our ears. But God. But God. That when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, for by grace you have been saved, God has made us alive. This is what God does. He is not willing to leave the people of Israel to themselves. He saved a remnant. You know, we could talk about the new covenant. We don't have time to do that right now. But suffice it to say this, God saved a portion or there would have been none. They would have been utterly and entirely corrupted. And then what would have happened to the promise related to the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3? What would have happened? And then what of the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that all the families of the earth would be blessed because of Him? What would have happened to those promises then if God just left us to ourselves? Catastrophic judgment. Catastrophic judgment was averted because God in His mercy, in His kindness, in His goodness, in His grace, and in accordance with His plan, saved people that were dead set against Him. That's what happened in the life of Israel. It's amazing. Dear brothers and sisters, as you look around at the world, as you look around at the brokenness that you see every day, can I encourage you, don't let the circumstances of this life tell the story for you. Look to the Scriptures and see that God has it all under control. He knows what He's doing. Look at the Scriptures and behold how God is still saving people. And He's going to make all things new. This is going to happen. Amen. When? I don't know. When? You don't know. But He will make all things new. This is a reality. You know, there's a, an implication from this that we're seeing. We saw that God is widening the scope, right? It's not just the Jews only, but it's also the Gentiles, even us whom He's called. Great. He's widening it out. He's making those who were not recipients of mercy, recipients of mercy and loved. Those who are not His children, those who are His children and secure. It's beautiful. There's an implication with regard to this small remnant that God has rescued from the people of Israel. It'll take us about five minutes, five to ten minutes of our thoughts. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to promise you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these are the best thoughts you're going to have all week. Now, I'm hopeful for myself as well as for you that these thoughts are going to be rehearsed and regurgitated throughout the week. We're going to be thinking about this over and over again because this, this is gospel gold, what we're going to talk about here. God's merciful redemption of a Jewish remnant paves the way 
for billions of believers. Billions of believers. Take a look back in the book of Romans, this time at chapter 11. God's merciful redemption of a Jewish remnant paves the way for billions of believers. Romans 11. Take a look starting at verse 2. Paul emphatically declares, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed Your prophets. They have demolished Your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek My life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is what? A remnant chosen by grace. Look down at verse 11. Uh, Verse 6, sorry. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Look down at verse 11 now. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? What is his answer? You, you use the ESV. It's kind of boring. By no means. Not, the, the ESV isn't boring. It's just the, the, the way that they ch- choose to reflect this. The King James gets a little spicy. God forbid! Now, it doesn't... That's just God isn't actually in the Greek text. God forbid. It's not there. It's meganoita. Let it never be. Or, no way! No how! Absolutely not! Has God allowed them to stumble that they might fall? What's the answer? No way! Not at all! He says, rather, through their trespass, what does it say next? Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He has greater things in store than what we see right now. This is good news, my friends. Every day, if you turn on your television and look at the news, or you turn on your interwebs, or you get your phone out and you see all this stuff that's coming up, and all the news, and it's like, blah, torturous to look at. God tells you right here and right now, He is saving people now, and He's saving more people now, and there's more to come in the future, because this is who God is. And what He wills will not be stopped. This is good news. God is saving a group, a large group of people for Himself. And God does things that we don't understand. We don't comprehend well with our minds how God goes about some of these things. But we do understand what the end of the matter is. He's working for something greater than we could imagine. These concepts were foreseen in the Old Testament. They were tasted in the time of the Apostles. And they've been carried out during the church age and are gloriously depicted in the book of Revelation. Oh, that I had the rest of my life to talk about this. Um, Quickly, Isaiah 19. 
I'm going to keep my comments to a minimum at this point. Isaiah 19, what we want to see in Isaiah 19 is that before the day when God revealed to Peter that God, that Gentiles, excuse me, that Gentiles were clean and that the Gentiles needed to hear the gospel message, God had already been telling his people that the Gentiles would be incorporated into his plan of salvation. So we're in Isaiah 19. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to make no comments. Pray for me. Verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and trembling with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts, Egyptians, wearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifices and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to the pleas of mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the works of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you hear what's happening here? The people of Israel, remnant, but God is saving larger amounts. They were just a small sampling of the whole earth. Head over to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. God is telling us about this glorious day when He brings in all of the redeemed. We can touch on a portion of Isaiah 56. Take a look beginning in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dying tree or a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar for My house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? All peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. Listen, God is doing this work. In Zechariah 2.11, it says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, 
and shall be my people. How many people? Many nations, God's people. This is what's going on. God is doing this work. Of course, we see the Lord Jesus in his ministry. He brings the gospel not only to the Jews, but he furthered it to the surrounding nations. Remember that, that guy that had all the demons that was outside of Jerusalem? Remember uh, so, some, some, some ladies that came from other locations? They, they came from outside of Israel. Because Jesus' blessing is not just for a select few. His blessing came to bless the nations, the world. In the Acts of the Apostles, the church was instructed to be witnesses. And where was their witness to start? Okay, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Everywhere. In this very letter that we've been studying, the book of Romans, the gospel was declared. It's a clear illustration that the gospel is for all people. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Later on today, look up Ephesians chapter 2. It'll be on the, the screen there for a second. Take a look. There it is. Ephesians 2, 17 through 20, talking about how God has caused the Gentiles to be part of his workmanship. He's incorporated us into the very foundation of the church. This is what God has done. Now we turn our attention for just a couple of moments to the book of Revelation because it's a forecast of what's to come. We've seen the the foreshadowing from Isaiah that God was incorporating all these people. You see it in the life of Christ. You see it in the Acts of the Apostles. You see it recorded in the, the letters to the churches. And now as we think about that which is to come, God gives us a little glimmer, a little glimpse in the book of Revelation at some of the glorious scenes that we will behold. If you're, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? This, this you will see with your eyes, this you will be a part of in your worship. Think about that. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they, or you could even say, just for the sake of application, and we, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed, that means to pay the price for, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we're, we're seeing this broadening to include all these nations and all these redeemed of all the time. I wonder, how many are there? Well, Revelation chapter 7, in verse 9, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, palm branches, and they are singing this glorious song, Salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. You come to the end of the book of Revelation. Not the last chapter, just before it. Revelation 21 and verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Listen carefully. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. There is no mention of Jews versus Gentiles or anything like it. This is those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
this salvation that God offers, He offers to the world a remnant, a small residue of the people of Israel throughout history have been saved and have preserved God's promise. The result was the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and the finished work of Jesus Christ that resulted in the salvation of a great multitude that no one could number. A great multitude that no one could number. How many is that? It says no one can number it. <laughs> Abraham, look into the sky. Take it. What do you see there? Count those. Go off to the seashore. Go over there. Count the grains. How many? Countless. Why is this? Because God, in His mercy and in His grace, saved a remnant of those rebellious Israelites to preserve the promise. And He has offered that salvation to rebellious people like me and rebellious people like you who is given the right to be called children of God. Not because you did something to earn it, but because He did something to earn it. This is glory. This is the Gospel. This is why we have hope. This is why we worship. Because God saves people like us. So what do we do with this information? Well, I have just three quick things to say to kind of wrap up our thoughts. I think we should know that no matter what the scenery looks like, God has everything under control. And He is using all the circumstances that are in our lives to bring about His plan to save people of every type. So we should trust Him. Secondly, as believers, we know that the message of the Gospel is God's power to bring about salvation. Keep telling people the Gospel. And watch God powerfully free men and women from the grip of their sin. And third, the offer of God's salvation goes forth to you today. Here's the offer. You're a sinner. And your sin deserves and requires justice because God is holy. But God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. Recognize your sin. Understand that you're a sinner. Turn. Turn from your sin. This sinful way will not satisfy you and it will not provide you with redemption. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the offer. He, he lists it out. He's holding it out to you today. So what do you do? God I see I'm a sinner. And I know what my sin will do. But I also know what You've done for me through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive me.
and give me eternal life. You know what he'll do? He'll forgive you and give you eternal life. You want to know why? Because that's a prayer in accordance with the will of God. This is what he does. And so we have before us the gospel to treasure for ourselves, to broadcast to the nations, and to remind us of the hope that is to come. Because he will, in fact, accomplish all these things. This all will be behind us, and the glory of the Lord will be before us. We will enjoy it for every day of eternity, which does not end. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. These passages are amazing and challenging to us. Help us to love you more, to know you better, and help us, use us as vessels to minister your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly in our homes, in the church, and in our communities for your sake and for theirs. In Jesus' name, amen.